So as we transition here, I want to open up talking about something that we're all familiar with. If you have a TV or eyeballs, you know that our culture is obsessed with superheroes, right? This is, you know, every new movie comes out, there's lines around the corner, the merchandise is crazy, there's posters everywhere, and little kids dress up as superheroes, grown men and women dress up as superheroes, I don't understand why, but they do. We're just fascinated with things that are larger than life. They, they captivate us. They draw us in. And we have kind of our own uh, real-world superheroes where you know, they're not written on the pages of a comic book, but athletes and celebrities who we think that they're more important than us or they do something that, that we aspire to do so we look up to them. And so often we take people who are stronger, faster, smarter, more talented, more good-looking than us, Make, we make them heroes, and we set them up as examples in front of us, kind of our functional superheroes. But I want us to think about this morning, what kind of subconscious message does that send? Does it send a message? And I would argue that it does, because we're conditioned to think, well, I'm ordinary. I'm not on TV. I'm not in front of thousands of people. I don't have all these amazing skills, so I just lead an ordinary life. And I'm not that important. But sadly, this is not exempt in the church either. Because we have celebrity Christians. We have superhero Christians who we prop up and we give them this, this high standard that they're not meant to live up to. We're not meant to exalt man in any way. But we do it. Oh, the person who has these more visible gifts, we lift them up. The person who speaks for a living, we, we, we lift them up. And so... If I'm not a pastor, if I'm not a missionary, if I'm not doing something big, and we equate big with important, then God can't use me. And how often do we do that? Those are the important things. The person who speaks to thousands, those are the important things. The people who do the visible things, those are the the, the things that bring God more glory because it's on a grand stage. But how many famous men that we've propped up have we seen fail? How many people who we've put so much attention and effort into as if they can lead us fail? How often do we place the emphasis on the messenger instead of the message? And it is to our own detriment. Because the Bible paints a very different picture. Scripture is very different. People have always loved celebrities. They've always loved athletes. They've always propped people up. But God intentionally uses the ordinary, uses the lowly, uses the underdogs to show that he is awesome and not them. I think that is really important for us to think about, that our God is awesome even when we are not. And our faith and our effectiveness does not depend on how successful our gifts are. It depends on how good our God is. Let me give you some examples. Abraham was a nobody. Abraham was pulled out of paganism, did not come from a rich family tree. His father was a polytheist. He worshiped many gods. God called him and made him the father of many nations. Moses was a stammering murderer. He was afraid to speak in front of people. And God called him and used him mightily. David was a runt, a scrawny little kid. God raised him up to be the king of Israel. And even as king, he was driven by his carnal desires. Yet still, God used him to write some of our most profound scriptures. Gideon was a coward. Jonah was selfish. All the prophets were servants and shepherds, none of them born to noble birth. We we don't hear about their their physical attributes or what they look like, but the Lord used these men from small tribes in small places. The disciples, they were poor little fishermen. Yet God used this group of 12 ragtag teenagers to send the gospel into all nations of which we are fruits of. But yet we still think that God can't use me I'm not a pastor. I can't do this. I'm not a missionary. I'm not called to these things. So God can't use me. I don't have any special gifts. 
God is in the business of using nobodies like us so that he gets the glory. To show his strength. Because we are his people. And with his spirit, he uses us. And so this morning, I want you to see that even if you feel like my gifts are insignificant, my calling is insignificant, that God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. So that's where we're going to begin is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'd open your Bibles for me. I want to read this before we set up our text because this is, this is helpful. And I have read this several times, but I hope this is an encouragement to you. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. So let me know if any of this sounds familiar. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I don't see any kings, queens, princes in here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses the unlikely so that we might boast in him. That we might not rest in our own abilities and our own charisma, but that the, our best are filthy rags and foolishness so that God may be glorified. So we have to stop thinking that the important jobs just belong to professional Christians. That learning and, and, and growing and encouraging and all the things we're going to see this morning are only for certain people. We are the foolish things of the world, but we have the righteousness of Christ. We have the wisdom of God and redemption in us through him. So today's text is one of those examples where God uses and Paul recognizes ordinary people. And so this is the part of the book that we typically tend to read through. Or excuse, excuse me, like just read through quickly. The first three chapters, okay, this is, this is the good stuff. This tells us who Christ is, what we're to do. It you know, deals with all of the actions. Now Paul is just writing to a bunch of his friends. Let me read through this quickly. I have to admit I've been guilty of that far too often and early on in my Christian walks, like, I don't know any of these names. I don't want to have to take the effort to, to look these up, so I'm just going to skim past them. But this is so rich, because at the end of the letter, we get something that we should really strive for in a way that we can emulate Paul. We see his pastoral heart. He knew people by name. He knew God, how God had wired them, and he, and he encouraged people, and he encouraged them well. He has an intimate knowledge and interest in the people of God, and He's so complimentary about them. And that's something we should strive to. Because all these people who uh, they may have thought they were insignificant then, they were used by God in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And they still have things to teach us today. You know, so before we begin in our text, I was reminded of how valuable this was on our men's trip. If you had the honor and privilege to go on, on the men's trip we did a lot of stuff that guys did. We, you know, we played sports and we, you know, skinned our knees and, and ate too much and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was, if, if you guys were there, you know that the, the last night was our favorite night. So the last night, uh, we spent time in a circle of guys looking at the Christian attributes that we've spent time studying in Second Timothy, uh, the, the book of Second Timothy. We went around and encouraged each other. And I thought, well, this will take 30, 45 minutes. It'll be two, three minutes on each, on each person. We were there for three hours to hear men say, you know, I've seen this in you. I've seen this in you. Thank you for the way that you've ministered in my life. Thank you for uh, being faithful with what God's given you and praising God for the gifts he's given different people. Man, that was such uh, a great reminder for me that we need to be encouragers. I need to be a better encourager. And that the, the value it is, it is to the body to recognize the gifts of the body. And so Paul has a great um, 
sets a, a great tone for us in this passage. So in Colossians, we're finishing Colossians today. Um, I feel like we could be in here for another three months, but we are finishing today. Uh, so I'm going to read from verse 7 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you that you used men to put pen to page through your Holy Spirit words that have life in them that bring life to our souls, that, that challenge our minds, that stir our affections, that direct our actions. We praise you, Lord, that there is still an example to us today. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom, that we might read your word and apply it. I pray that you give us understanding, that it may seek into our hearts and it may direct our actions. And I pray that we would be a congregation that lives like Paul exemplifies. That we know one another. That we encourage one another. That we are known as faithful brothers and sisters, servants of Christ Jesus. Because of what He has done for us. We are new creations. We should act like it. And we should be encouraged because we are His and our lives belong to Him, and so does everything we do. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so this morning, this sermon is going to be a little bit different than some of the other ones have been. It's going to be more historical. Uh, so I'm going to bring up quickly some references to where these people are brought up. Because if you're like me, as a young Christian, I was too lazy to look these, these people up. That's okay. I did the work for you. Um, and we're going to talk briefly, paint a small character sketch of each of these, these people, and then kind of talk about what we can learn from them. So I'm going to bring up the biblical references quickly. We can't go to them all. Um, but we're also get, what we're going to do is tie in a lot of the themes from throughout this, this book. So Paul gave us a lot of uh, doctrinal uh, truths, but a lot of pastoral exhortation and a lot of pastoral examples. So we're going to pull in some of those. Uh, because really what we're seeing here at the end of this letter is what Paul taught us about Christ. If you want to turn to chapter 1, you know, this great Christological statement, who Christ is and what he's done in chapter 1. But I want to pick up in verse 19. So remember, we've said this all along. Who Jesus is and what he's done is essential to who you are. We're going to tie this entire letter together. So in chapter 1, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fully God, fully man, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Person of God, or person of Christ, fully God, fully, God, fully man, work of Christ, reconciliation through the cross. It is his redemption that reconciles us to God, makes us right with God. And we don't stop there because this is a continuation. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So when Paul writes, he's writing to people who have been reconciled by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They've been reconciled by his blood. Those who are strangers and aliens are now holy and blameless. Those who are separated apart from God are now united through him. And this is an encouragement to those who are united. And he's speaking about those not just in the church in Colossae, but those who are with him, his fellow workers in Rome, those who are a comfort to him, who've been reconciled by the work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not just a calling for those in, in office or those who are very public. He tells us in chapter 3, look at verse 15 of chapter 3. The same peace of Christ, the same peace that was accomplished through the cross. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The emphasis is not on the particular calling, but that you were called as a body. The emphasis is on the the unity, not the individuality. As we speak of the individuals here, our primary identity is that we are one in Christ and one with one another. And then our gifts come out of that. Like the First Corinthians passage we read earlier, the emphasis is on the body. And then all of the members of the body strengthen and build that, that body up. But the emphasis is on the body because the head is Christ. And so everything we see here is coming out of what Christ has done, who he is, and who we are in him. So let's pick up in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Um, I love that Paul does not write a letter about himself. Paul does not write, hey, let me tell you all the things I've been doing. Let me tell you about how bad the food is in prison. Let me tell you about everything that, that they did to me in Rome. He spends three and a half chapters on encouraging them. His concern is for the church, not for himself. And then he sends Tychicus. And, and I, I love him because it's a name that does not roll off the tongue and is not really familiar to us. But he comes up often in the writings of Paul, and Paul trusts him with his message. Look at what he says about him. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was sent often. Now, I'm going to pull up the the map that we pulled up in the beginning of of Colossians. So Paul is in Rome. It's about 1,400 miles from Rome to Ephesus uh, straight. When you're, when you're traveling by boat and, and, and by foot, this is the length of like New York to Florida, more or less. I mean, it's going to take weeks to get from there to there. So Tychicus is sent there. He's sent to Ephesus. Well, if you read the end of Ephesus, end of chapter 6, Tychicus is given the same encouragement. He's going to tell you everything I'm doing. He's going to encourage you. He's going to, uh, to, to relay my, my messages to you. And then he went from Ephesus to Colossae, 120 miles. My foot is not short. Uh, he was also sent down to Crete where uh, Titus is. When Paul writes to Titus, he's in Crete. So Crete is that island that's uh, just to the left of Patera. Uh, out in, and so he travels out there. He's sent to Ephesus more than once from Rome. So Tychicus goes from Rome 1,400 miles to Ephesus, makes his rounds to the churches, goes back to Paul, and he's sent again toward the end of Paul's life. We see this in, uh, what is it, 2 Timothy 4. And what an amazing job this is. And this, is, this does not seem like a great calling, right? Paul's gonna, I'm Paul's mailboy. Like he's he's going to send me with messages to all these churches. But we would not have these letters if it wasn't for his faithful travels. And the thing about what an honor it is to be entrusted with Paul's letters and to be looked at as a faithful servant. So I want to quickly look at these three terms here. Because these terms, beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant. They co-sign his message. Why listen to what Tychicus has to say? Why do I trust his message? Because this is who he is. Three things. Beloved brother, their identity is unified. Tychicus is Paul's brother in Christ. They are family. He is a beloved brother. I love him. We are united in Christ. That's who he is first and foremost. He is also a faithful minister. He is steadfast in his mission. What God has called him to do, he is faithful in it. He does not swerve from the right or to the left. He does what is asked of him. And he is a fellow servant. And we've 
discussed this a little bit at the end of chapter 3. This is doulos, slave. He's a fellow slave of Christ. A bond servant, devoted to his master. He used to be a slave to sin, and now he's a slave to Christ. Think about what this meant for the church, in the early church. You know, your, your church gets, gets planted. You don't have any apostles. You don't have any teachers. You don't have any elders. You have no instruction. You have complete, a complete oral tradition. And then someone like Tychicus gets on a boat and then walks across land, and then gets on another boat, and then walks across land, and then gets on another boat to go to Ephesus, and then travels another 120 miles to go to Colossae so that you may be encouraged by the words of Paul. So don't worry about doing anything big or anything important. There were no crowds surrounding Tychicus. There was no ticker tape parade when he showed up. But we still have the benefit of his faithful travels. He did something so important without being... And he just becomes a footnote, a name that appears four or five times in the New Testament, yet none of us knows offhand. And I would encourage you to, don't worry about what the, the world thinks or your, your accomplishments. Strive to be, called, to be spoke of the way Paul speaks of Tychicus. If there's anything we strive for in our lives, strive to be called a, a, a beloved brother, a beloved sister. Strive to be called a faithful minister. Strive to be called a fellow servant of Christ. And he was sent, verse 8, I have sent them to you for this very purpose. Two things, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your heart. So there's a personal charge. He wasn't just a mailman. He was entrusted with Paul's very update. Hey, this is the letter for you, and there's a letter for, uh, for Laodicea, and there's a, there's a letter for Colossae, and there's, and there's Philemon. But also tell them how I'm doing. Give them an update. Paul trusts him so much that he sends them across the world, essentially, with a message for the church. And it is meant to be an encouragement. What an honor it is to be trusted with this message, to be trusted to be an encouragement to the church. And I want you to think about this. We are given, we are entrusted the same way. We are given a message of encouragement. We are given instruction for the churches. Each one of us who has the scriptures has been entrusted with this, this mystery that we've been looking at in, in, Colossae, in Colossians. Each one of us has the scriptures. Each one of us can tell the words of Paul, the gospel of Christ. Each one of us has been entrusted with this message, and it is an honor. And it is meant to be an encouragement to the body. I'm glad, I love how Josh prayed earlier that our Bibles would not collect dust on the shelf. That this message of encouragement, that this instruction that Tychicus put his life on the line for and traveled across the world to encourage the churches would be our source of encouragement, our source of instruction to one another as well. But as we See, in the scriptures, they, they never travel alone, which is, which is wise. There's always uh, comfort. And so Onesimus traveled with him. Look how Onesimus is described. Our faithful and beloved brother. He is faithful and he's a beloved brother. Who is one of you? Meaning he's a member of your church. He's from Colossae. But what this doesn't tell you is that Onesimus is a slave. Onesimus is a slave who's probably stolen from his master or a run, run away. Uh, that's why we're going into Philemon next week. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks there because we see the application of what's going on in, in Colossae. This is a slave. He is currently owned by Philemon. He is the property of another man within the church. But Paul does not refer to him as slave. He refers to other men as slaves, but not Onesimus, to make sure that it is not confused. His primary identity is faithful brother, not slave. We're going to spend more time on him next week. But the thing we can learn from him is that we were once slaves. We were once slaves to sin. We were once enslaved by the powers and principalities of this world. We were under their control in shackles. But now we are called faithful brothers in Christ. Now our identity is not who we used to be or even what we do. Onesimus may be, a, may be a slave the rest of his life, but he is a free man in Christ. 
He will reign with him forever. This is our identity. So often we can be preoccupied, well, this is what I do for a living. This is lowly. This is not important. This man who's a slave, who's a slave deserter, who's converted under Paul's ministry in Rome, again, we'll we'll get there more next week, is now called faithful and beloved brother. This is what it means to be redeemed in Christ, from slave to faithful brother. But not just Onesimus. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, verse 10. Uh, Aristarchus comes up in Acts a couple times. He's from Macedonia, so he's... um, a, uh, a traveler along with, with, with Paul, and he puts his life on the line so much so he's a fellow prisoner. This is a literal prisoner. He is in the jail cell with Paul. Now here's another one. This guy who's sitting next to him. Do you think Aristarchus thought he was doing something important? Like, God, I'm just, am, I, am I just wasting my time sitting in this, this jail cell? I'm not doing anything. Could he have ever known the impact of the ministry of the Apostle Paul? Even if his sole job for being in prison was to encourage Paul, was to minister to Paul while Paul was ministering to all these churches and still ministers to us. Thank God for people like Aristarchus, who ministers in prison, who is faithful, who is a fellow prisoner of Paul, so that we might receive the word of God. What an important calling it is to be, just to encourage and support those who seem like they're doing something more important than you are. Or just be faithful wherever God has you, even in a jail cell. He goes on. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Mark, also named John Mark, has a real sordid history. You can kind of read through uh, that in, in uh, Acts. Mark shows up, Acts chapter 12. And um, I'm just going to give you some of the highlights. We'll look at Acts 12, 12, 12, 13, 13, and 15, 37 through 39. But I'm going to give you the uh, cliff notes. Basically, um, John Mark, his, his parents are believers. There's a church that, that meets in his house. Seems like he's, he's converted in that. Um, he begins to travel with Paul and Barnabas. He's Barnabas' little cousin. He takes him along. Everybody has one of those. Your little cousin, you, you take along with you. He gets scared. He abandons Paul. Paul wants nothing to do with him. Paul and Barnabas have an argument over it, and they, they, they part ways, of course. Barnabas sides with his, with his cousin and you know, takes John Mark with him, and Paul has nothing good to say about him then. But here we are 12 years later. This same scared little kid, John Mark, who ran off on his own. Listen to what Paul says. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Sure, they heard about him abandoning him. It was, Luke wrote it down in, in, in Acts. They probably didn't have Acts by now, but word travels. But Paul says, I've given you instructions. I knew who, know who this man is. The Lord has matured him. The Lord has, has, has brought him up. Even this immature, fearful kid is now valuable. That Paul sends specific instructions for him. He abandoned Paul 12 years before. But the Lord worked in him, and now he is a useful minister for the gospel. This is not the only time we see this, that Mark may come to you again. It's, this comes up in uh, 2 Timothy 4. But the other thing that's interesting about Mark is that um, he's a disciple of Peter while he was in Rome. So Peter was in Rome while Paul was imprisoned. Peter was discipling him. And as far as we understand, Mark wrote Peter's account of the gospel. So the Mark that you read is this scared guy who abandoned Paul on his missionary journey. And so this was written very early. It's actually the first gospel account written, about 50 to 60 A.D., written before the letter of Colossians. And so God uses this this guy who was a shame to Paul to now be an encouragement to the church. And so it's, um, you've got Mark, and then you've got, you know, um, Barnabas, his his cousin who, um, you know, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. You know, he's, he's spoken of so highly, but yet he was guilty of people-pleasing in Galatians. Galatians 3.13, or 2.13, um, the uh, circumcision controversy, he sides with, with Peter. He won't eat with the Gentiles. Paul calls him out. His, his, his travel companion, his friend, the son of encouragement, Paul says, stop trying to people-please. Stop trying to split up the body of Christ. You're redeemed in the Spirit. Are you not living in the flesh? But he's, 
still used an encouragement in the body. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is also called Justice. Jesus is a very popular name. Uh, and so in those days, you would have a Hebrew and a Greek or Roman name. So like, like Paul and Saul, just so you know, Paul, or Saul did not change his name to Paul. He had a Hebrew name and he had a Roman name. Most of them spoke uh, Hebrew, Latin, and, and Greek. And so if your name's Jesus, it's a little confusing. So justice is very cool anyway. So that's, that's all we know about him. But he was, but, but he was there and he, and he sends greetings. Even the no-name guy is a blessing. So these are the Jews. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Uh, and um, they have been a comfort to me. So there's a lot of people along Paul, with Paul, a lot of people coming and going, but Paul's the apostles of the Gentiles. There's just a few Jews with him. All the rest are, are, are Gentiles, and they're, they're coming to, to visit him. Well, this is one of the rare times where Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God. Paul does not use it often. Jesus uses it very often. But the emphasis is always there in Paul. When Paul speaks of the kingdom of God, he speaks of God's spiritual kingdom. That the people who labor are not laboring for their own name and their own reputation. They're not laboring for what's here and now, but they're laboring for an eternal crown. They are laboring for the kingdom of their king. They are laboring for the kingdom of God. Because Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And these are people whose, whose hopes and their identities are not set in this world. They are set in the world of their, their father and their brother who reigns as their, their high priest. And um, such an important thing that we can get lost in, that we are about kingdom work. And we are not called to make our kingdoms here. We are not called to prop up this earthly system while we live here. We are citizens of that kingdom. We are workers of that kingdom as these, these Jews are. And they are a comfort. It is a blessing to be a comfort. Even if you're just there to comfort someone who is in ministry, do not think that that is unimportant. Imagine how important it is for Paul being imprisoned to be comforted by faithful believers. And how important it is to be a comfort, those who have been a comfort to you, that we might comfort one another. That seems unimportant. But that is such a blessing to the church, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, minimize things like that. Because Paul thinks it's important enough to say, they have been a comfort to me. So we should think it's important enough to be a comfort to one another. So he transitions from Jews now into the Gentiles. So these are the only Jews that were with me. Epaphras, who is one of you, servant of Christ Jesus. Epaphras is, if there is a hero in the book, other than Christ, it is Epaphras. Uh, we, we saw him early on. We saw him in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Look at what Paul says about Epaphras. We don't know exactly his role, but the understanding is that Epaphras was discipled by Paul, was sent out to Colossae. He's, he's an evangelist. He planted the church. He built up the church. And when he sees false teaching starting to creep in, he goes to Paul and says, Paul, there's some stuff going on here. I need you to say something to this church in Colossae. So he travels from Colossae to Rome to get words from Paul for this church, which he helped found. And how do we know that? Chapter 1, verse 7. So, he, so Paul talks about the gospel, the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, he taught them. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made it known to us your love in the Spirit. He is their Evangelist, their founder and their advocate. He is standing before Paul. These people, the spirit is in them. They, they, they love one another, but they're listening to false teachers. There's a false gospel coming in. Some people are telling them that Christ is not enough, that they need to do more. Paul, I, he agonizes over their state. We know this because Epaphras is attributed with the struggling on your behalf that Paul does. Now, the word for struggling that we've talked about, it means it's where we get our word agonize. He agonizes in prayer over them the same way Paul did at the end of chapter 1, 129. Paul says this, For this I toil, this meaning presenting you mature in Christ, struggling with all his energy, the energy of God that he, is, that he powerfully works in me. Paul struggles for these people. 
He wants them to be mature. He doesn't want them to be led astray. And Epaphras is the same way. On his knees, struggling for them in prayer. He cares for them so much, he travels all the way to Rome, and he prays for them every day that they may remain pure, that they may be mature. It's exactly what he asked for here. He's struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That is a faithful fight, struggling in his prayers. Because he cannot physically do it, but he goes before the God who can. He goes before his high priest. Struggles on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. We've seen several times in this letter, maturity is important to the Apostle Paul. Maturity is important in the church. Maturity, mean, this, this word means to be complete, means to be full in Christ. This is against the false teachers who say that you need some other kind of fullness. You need some other kind of higher understanding. You need some other emotional experience other than to be full of Christ. But here... When they pray for maturity, they know what we need. We need more Jesus. We need more knowledge of him. We need more life in him. We need to be complete in him so that we may be fully assured. This means to be fully convinced, fully satisfied. There is nothing else to be added, nothing that can be taken away from what you have in Christ. I want that for you. I am praying that you are fully assured, you are fully convinced that you are whole in Christ Jesus. This is how you love your church well. You pray for them like that. And not just that. You may stand mature in your character, assured in your salvation, and consistent in your action, in the will of God. This phrase comes up a lot in Paul. This is not what the world makes it seem that it's situational. Well, is this, the will, this situation the will of God? This situation the will of God? Paul never speaks that way. The will of God is for you to be faithful. The will of God is for you to be obedient. It is not situational, it's volitional. Which means that you have an a intentional desire to do it. Your intentional desire is to be faithful wherever God has you. Your intentional desire is to be obedient wherever God has you. That is the will of God. The will of God is that you grow to maturity in Christ. That you are fully assured of who you are in Him. And that you walk in obedience and faithfulness as Christ called us to. This is what Epaphras prays for in the church. This is how we should pray for one another. And not only that, he's faithful in his prayers, but he's a hard worker. He's no slouch. This is another thing that we should be known for. Not lazy in our faith, not taking it for granted. For I bear him witness, verse 13, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. This is how serious he takes his ministry. He planted the church in Colossae. Maybe he was involved in Laodicea and Hierapolis. These are the kind of tri-cities that are, uh, that, that, are, that are grouped together. They're always seen together. He cares for that church and also the other churches in the area. He has a heart for Colossae, but he's also praying for the other churches. He also knows the other people in the other churches. There's a, a unity in the body in the churches in the area. I mean, Epaphras does everything well. He shares the gospel, he travels, he intercedes in prayer, he, he teaches, he works hard, but at the end of the day, he's still a servant of Christ. He is a slave of Christ Jesus. His identity is who he is in, in Christ. Now we get into Luke. Luke, we're, we're familiar with. But really, the most details we have about Luke are in Colossians. Luke doesn't give himself some long introduction. He doesn't say, hey, I'm a doctor. Paul does. Uh, we discern that Luke is a Gentile because he's not listed among the Jews. But really beyond Colossians, we don't know a lot about Luke. Uh, when he writes in Acts, I think it's chapter 15 where he joins Paul, or 16, um, he writes, he goes from they to we. Still doesn't speak about himself. It doesn't say much about himself. He's, he's a doctor. He's a smart guy. We do learn from the beginning of, of Luke that he did a lot of research. He interviewed a lot of people who are still alive so that he got the account correct. He's this steady companion and co-laborer of, of Paul. He's a doctor. He's a writer. He's a researcher. But we don't know. Is he a powerful preacher? Did he have a healing ministry? We, we don't know. He's, he's an intellectual. Spends a lot of time in books. That's useful to the Lord, too. Because even if you are not public, you can use your, your, your gifts to encourage those who are, who are ministering, to write, to use your, your mind to honor God. 
So you've got those who, who, who serve well, those who, will, those who will travel, those who will do research. I am so thankful for those who are faithful in, in, in researching where our scriptures come from and defending the, the, the original sources. I do not want to do that. But I'm thankful that there are people who, who do. I'm thankful for those people who can sit in a room and read all day because I can't. Because most of us can't. But if you can, use that for the Lord. Use the gifts God's given you. Even, you know, whether it's charismatic, like out, you know, being a charismatic personality, or being an intellectual. Um, so another Gentile is Demas. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. We don't know much about Demas, except that he's an apostate. What? So that we'll put that Second Timothy verse up. Do your best to come to me soon. So you're going to see a lot of these names come up again. Paul writes the letter with, with, with Timothy. Um, uh, and now he writes this letter to Timothy, but the same people are, are, are kind of brought in uh, as this passage expands. But do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's not a good thing to be attributed to you. So this is about five or six years later. This is Paul's uh, last imprisonment here when he wrote 2 Timothy. But even then, Demas is still used by God earlier. Even, even apostates, even those who will leave the faith God uses, and he's, he's walking alongside Paul. Let's keep reading through this, kind of tie together some of these names we, we've seen already. Verse 11. Luke alone is with me, so this is kind of the end. Luke is with him to the very last day. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Remember Mark, who abandoned Paul? Now he's very useful at the end of his life. Tychicus, I have sent it. Tychicus is on the road again. Tychicus is, is sent back to Ephesus. Now, you know, once you start to see these, these names and read through the New Testament, oh, wait a second. You begin to learn about these people and, and see how, yes, we always mention the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else. But Paul was not alone. Paul had faithful ministers alongside him the entire way. So now we shift from the greeting of the servants to Paul's personal direction and exhortation in his last section. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. This is the church down the street and to Nympha. You know, so when he greets the church down the street, he's saying, it's not just your church that, that, that matters. He's encouraging communication between churches. He's, 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 commun- he's encouraging the, the, the relationship between local churches, which is a good thing. Something that's been on my heart and thinking about striving toward and, toward and, you know, how can we meet with and encourage other local churches? And then he gets to, to Nympha. Nympha and the church in her house. We don't know much about her. Wealthy widow, um, you know, was it the house church? Was there several house churches? But we do know that women played a very integral part in the early church where um, Lydia had a church in her home. Priscilla and Aquila had churches meet in their home. Even if it's just, hey, I don't know what else to do, but I've got this space. Her hospitality was a ministry to the church. Just opening up your home, and, and I think we should think about that. That God has, has given you your house, everything you have, to be used for his glory, for the work of his kingdom. So every time you open up your house in the name of Jesus, the church is gathered. The church meets. God is glorified and the people are encouraged. And Paul goes out of his way to encourage Nympha here. What you do by opening up the doors of your home and welcoming people into your home does not go unnoticed. It is, it is valuable and what you're doing has made its way all the way to Rome. So then he goes on. He says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And so there's this, this understanding that the, this, this begins our pattern of, of Scripture. Well, why does everyone read these same books? Why are we still reading them? Because Paul put this practice in early. This is good instruction. This is breathed out by God for you and pass it on to other churches. It is for you. It was for Colossae, but it's not just for Colossae. It's an encouragement to Laodicea and swap the letters. Now, if you've read your Bible recently, you know we don't have a letter to Laodicea. Uh, Paul also speaks of another letter he wrote to the church in, in Corinth. We don't have those either. These are lost to us. Um, but it's important for us to r- realize that not everything the apostles wrote is canon or is, is scripture. When they wrote out their, their grocery list, it was not inspired. So 
the Holy Spirit preserved what, what needed to be preserved and what, what wasn't um, was still a ministry to the church at the time, but not as, not as useful for us. Um, one other thing about Laodicea, though. I was going to get to Revelation, but we don't have time. Um, if you read through the churches in, in Revelation, this is about 30 years after this is written. They are the unfaithful church. This is what happens when you do not regard the instruction of the Lord. And within one generation, John is, or the, the, Jesus is revealing to John how this church is not faithful. And so you can look at that in Revelation 3, uh, starting in verse 14. But it's important, within one generation, if you do not stick with God's word, if you do not uh, institute it, if you do not hold tight to it, you will be drifted, you'll be pulled astray by the culture. So I will finish with the last one here, um, Archippus, verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Uh, We don't know what that ministry is, but he's got a particular calling. We'll see this next week as we get into Philemon. Um, and I keep saying it's going to bug me, but there is no I or E sounds in, in Greek. It's Philemon. But it sounds weird saying it because I've always heard Philemon my whole life. But I'm going to start saying Philemon next week. Um, I'm going to get it all out now. Uh, so in verse 2, he's called a fellow soldier. So whatever he's doing, it is important. The church knows who he is. Probably some kind of uh, pastoral or, or oversight charge. But even, even the, the, the guy who's got a particular ministry, who's a fellow soldier for the gospel, is not given some huge write-up. He's kind of tacked on at the end, oh yeah, and tell him. You know who he is. Make sure that he is faithful in what you've, you've given him. So Paul closes here. I, Paul, verse 18, write this uh, greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. A couple things. I write this with my own hand. Uh, typically, Paul would not write all of, of his letters. There was, there was an important job called an amanuensis, basically your own personal scribe. Someone would, would, would sit there along with you and write this all out. But to make sure that they knew it came from Paul, he'd write the last line in his own handwriting. So you know, I write this greeting with my own hand. That's kind of what we assume is going on. The other thing that's, that's important to note here is that we don't have any what they call autographs left. So an autograph would be the original copy. The one that was penned by Paul, we have none of those. We have manuscripts that are within 30 to 40 years of that, but none of the original ones. But that's not a bad thing. Because I think um, if there, there were autographs left, if there were original writings of, of Paul, the Roman Catholic Church would put it in a box and charge an entry fee. Um, so it, it's good that we're not worshiping the original text. Know that it is true. That, that Paul did write it, and he gave a sign to them by his own handwriting that this is from me. And so the early church knew that, and the early church never doubted that. And, and so that was, was meant to be proof that the apostle signed and wrote this. And he closes with two things. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. Why remember my chains? Because Paul is saying, this is how serious I take this. I'm in jail for the gospel. I'm going to die by the, by the hand of Rome for the gospel. This is no game for me. Remember my chains. I am a prisoner of Christ, literally, so that the gospel may go all the way to Rome. This is how serious it is for me. Use that as motivation for you. How serious should the gospel to be, be for you? I'm in, I'm in prison. You think about that. Remember my chains. And then he closes with this great Christian exhortation, grace be with you. He opens the letter. Verse 2, chapter 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It is a unique Christian greeting because no one on earth can understand grace. You do not know grace until you realize that you are a sinner, that you deserve to die, and that your God took on flesh to die for you. Then you understand grace. And it is only a Christian who can say grace be with you because we have experienced grace and we can give grace because grace has been given to us. This is not a light greeting that we just take for granted. We've been given grace by the God of the universe. When we did not deserve it, he gave us mercy when we did not deserve mercy so that we might speak and offer grace to one another, as Paul did. So quickly as we conclude this morning, I want us to just run through these, these people. When you think that 
I'm not a super Christian. I don't have a lot of gifts. I don't know how the Lord can use me. The Lord can use you. Let's look at all these examples. He used Tychicus to deliver messages and encourage the church. He used Onesimus, who's a redeemed slave. He used Aristarchus to keep Paul company in jail. He used Mark, a scared young man who turned into faithful companion and writer of Holy Scripture. And Justice, he had a cool name and he was there. Epaphras is a hard worker and an intercessor. Luke is a doctor, an intellectual, and a travel companion. Demas, even an apostate, was useful for a time. Nympha uses her home and hospitality to host the church. And Archippus ministers in Colossae. I want to leave you with this. In Christ, we are one in him. We all have different gifts, different callings, different parts of the body. Every part of the body is important, though. And I am proud to serve with you as fellow workers in Christ. And so as we pray, and I will continue to pray for you to stand mature in Christ, for you to be fully assured of your salvation, and for you to do everything in the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, your word is an encouragement to us. Some weeks we dig into the depths of theology. Some weeks we we search our own hearts and our own character. Some weeks we just need to be encouraged and reminded of who we are. And I pray that this, this text would be an encouragement to us. That next time we read through the epistles, we don't just skip over these names, but think about the faithful servants who have gone before us. Think about those who labored for the gospel and went to jail for the gospel. Those who you have used mightily. And that we might see ourselves as being used by you. That no part of the body is unimportant. That everything we do, if done unto the name of the Lord, it is pleasing to you. And we can boast in what you've done in us. Because at the end of the day, there will not be a tally how much we've accomplished. But there will be a celebration that we are reunited with you forever. Lord, let us fix our eyes on your kingdom on the things that are above, not the things that are below, not to be distracted by false gospels saying that there's some, something needs to be added to Christ or taken away from Christ. Lord, give us confidence that we are full in you. You have done everything needed to assure our salvation and secure our salvation, that our identity is in you and we are united to one another through you. And we praise you for this as your body, your church, your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.